Hey, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to First Free. So glad you're here. My name is Adam. If you're new, thanks for being with us at church today. And for those of you that cannot be here and are watching online right now, we want to say welcome to you as well. Thanks so much for being here. We're going to continue our study in the parables. We launched this series last week. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter five, you can do that and be prepared for a little bit later. First, I want to tell you about my dogs. My dogs are Titan and Mocha. And Titan is an English black lab. Mocha is a German shepherd Sheltie mix. We thought she was going to be a German shepherd collie mix. That's what we were told until she stopped growing. And then we figured out she's a German shepherd Sheltie mix. So a little bit smaller, but got a lot of German shepherd in there. And they're, they're good dogs for the most part. We've had them for 11 and 12 years. They're 11 and 12 years old. And we've had these dogs longer than we've had our kids. If we're being honest, they were our practice kids. And they're still here. So I think that bodes well for our children. And they're, they're great dogs. Our kids love them. Uh, they get along well, aside from some little issues that we had with Titan a couple of years ago where he just started to get older and his anxiety started to kick in a little bit as happens with labs sometimes and the puppy shrink gave him some meds and now he's good. He's all good. Uh, but sometimes our dogs will get into things that they shouldn't. Um, uh, sometimes they will get into something in the yard and eat a, a plant or something that they shouldn't, or maybe there's some item of food that the kids left in the house somewhere, and they will get into that. And then at some point around the house, we will find on the floor somewhere, uh, for some reason they prefer to do this on the carpet and not the hardwood floor, we will find that day's food, right? Brought back up. You know what I'm talking about. How many of you have dogs and have had this happen to you? It's a pretty common occurrence. It doesn't happen that often around our house, but when it does, we want to get to it right away. Because if we don't get it right away, there's a good chance that that same dog will come back around a little bit later and look at what they did and go, hey, I remember that. That was pretty good. I'd like to have it again. And they will have it again. And it's, it starts the cycle all over again. Gross, I know, but very biblical. There's an ancient Hebrew proverb that goes, a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. Peter quoted this in his, one of his letters, his second letter, and he added a little saying to it. It says, a dog returns to its vomit and a washed pig returns to the mud. Now we saw in the book of Colossians, how when a person trusts in Jesus, they get a new life in Christ. Their whole life becomes new. The old things are gone and we're separated from our sinful nature. We have this new life in Christ. But if we're being really honest, those old things still have a tendency to stick around, don't they? They still have a tendency to come back up and we wander back to them and they tempt us again. We're not bound by them. We're not enslaved by them. But the old way of life before trusting in Jesus, whatever that looks like for you, it still has a way of coming back around to us. We return to it again and again like a dog returning to its vomit or a washed pig to the mud. Even if you followed Jesus at a very young age, you may not remember what life looked like before you trusted in Jesus, but you did have an old sinful nature there and, and that, that sin temptation and tendency still sticks around and, and the principle still holds true of you can go back to that stuff again and again. Now, what makes this even worse is when we're lonely or we're discouraged or we don't have good, strong accountability relationships in our lives. 
strong relationships with other people who help us to stay on the right path. If we're lonely and we're discouraged and we don't have good connection with other people, then it's so much more likely that when those things come back around in our life, we're going to go right back to them. As a dog returns to its vomit, as a, a, a washed pig returns to the mud. Now, what has the pandemic done to us? It has made us lonely, it's made us discouraged, and it's broken our connection with other people. And so if you have experienced a lot more of this in the last year than maybe you have in previous years, this isn't an excuse, but maybe it's an explanation of how we keep going back to the things that we know God doesn't want in our lives, the things that God says will hurt us and it will hurt our relationships, and yet we continue to return to them. We're going to look at a parable of Jesus this morning, actually three different parables of Jesus, but they're all tied together. And they have to do with this idea of going back to the old when there is something new that is better. So if you're in Luke chapter five, we're gonna read starting in verse 33. Luke five, verse 33. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking. Now, right there, I'll tell you, these are my kind of guys. They are always eating and drinking. And and why are they doing that when these other people, very religious people, are all fasting? That just seems out of place. And Jesus responded, do the wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Let's just pause and pray and ask God for wisdom as we look at his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance that we have to gather here and to praise you together. We choose to worship you today, God. And now we continue to worship you by looking at your your word, the Bible together. And, And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what you want us to see in it. Even though it was written to a different people in a different place, in a different time, the the truths and the principles that it contains are timeless and universal. So help us to understand how to apply them to our lives today. Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us, each of us individually, as we learn what you have for us. Help us to be students of your word this week, to not just let it die here, but to keep chewing on this and, and digging on into it throughout the week so that our lives would look different because of what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So three different parables, three different analogies to answer the question, why do Jesus' disciples not fast? I want to explain what these parables mean and get into how we can apply the principles to our lives. But first, we need to understand this question better. Why does anybody care whether or not Jesus' disciples fast? What difference does that make to anyone else? Jenny and I were in Jordan, the country of Jordan, a few years ago during the month of Ramadan. And uh, we've got a picture, actually, we can show you of when we were in Jordan. This is in uh, Petra. There's this huge uh, structure carved into the stone. And that's actually Jenny and I in the doorway. That's how big this thing is. It's, it's massive. Incredible thing to go see. 
And we were very excited to be there. But then we found out that we were going to be there during Ramadan, which is the month for Muslims where they fast. So from sunup till sundown, they don't eat anything. They don't drink anything. And we, had, we, we knew people that lived in Jordan. We got some advice before we went there. And one of the things that they told us was, since it's Ramadan and since no one will be eating or drinking during the day, they'll be fasting, you might want to consider not having any food or drink in a way that they would be able to see while you're there to, to just kind of not offend them for, for one thing, but also so that if someone maybe is a little more irritable than normal because they're not eating like they normally would, because that happens and they're frustrated and they see you eating and they're upset a little bit, they might throw some things at you or they might do something else that's not so pleasant. So just for the sake of the people that are around you who are, who are having this fast for Ramadan, don't eat anything, don't drink anything. And that's what we did. We were very careful to not offend anyone while we were there. Now, this account of Jesus and his disciples not fasting is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic gospels. They're like parallel gospels. And John is a bit of an outlier. It takes a very different approach. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this account of the disciples of Jesus not fasting and others approaching and asking about it. And the other gospels that we didn't look at in Matthew and Mark give us a little extra detail. I like the story in Luke. We're going to focus on the one in Luke. But Matthew and Mark give us a little bit of extra information that's helpful. See, Mark tells us that the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were actually fasting at this time. So exactly what Jenny and I experienced in Jordan is what Jesus and the disciples were experiencing because all of the very religiously observant people were fasting at this time. And that was the thing that you were expected to do if you were pious and religiously observant. And Matthew adds, that was in Mark, Matthew adds that it was actually the disciples of John that came and asked this question of Jesus. So it wasn't even the Pharisees bringing this challenge. It was John's disciples, and John's a pretty good guy, who came and said, why aren't your disciples fasting like we are? I mean, if we got to do it, why aren't they doing it? And it's important to understand that in the first century AD, fasting had become a way to display your virtue. By fasting, you, you came across as being more pious, more observant, uh, closer to God. The Old Testament law actually only prescribed one day of fasting a year. That was the day of atonement. That was the day they were supposed to fast. But over time, the, the Jewish leaders, and especially the Pharisees, added on to this. And Jesus talks about that. We've gone over that over the last couple of years, how, how there were all these extra added man-made rules that got added on to what God actually gave them in the Old Testament. Well, one of those was that instead of the one day of fasting for the day of atonement, the Pharisees ended up with two days of fasting every week. We went from one day a year and then whatever other special circumstances might come up are up to you. And then two days a week that you are expected to fast. And the, the men, the followers of John, the followers of the Pharisees, no doubt, are looking at Jesus and his disciples who are not following this practice and no doubt are wondering, how has their rabbi not taught them this yet? I mean, I get that they're a bunch of like fishermen and tax collectors, so maybe they weren't that spiritual before, but they are following a rabbi now. They're following his way. They're, they've taken his yoke upon them, as we talked about last week. How has he not already taught them about this fasting thing that we're supposed to do twice a week? I mean, if they're really religious and spiritual, they should be doing this. Maybe you remember back in the late 90s, there was this kind of Christian fad, a Christian phase around a bracelet that you could wear and had four letters on it. Anybody remember what those letters were? 
WWJD. Now be honest with me. How many of you wore one of those bracelets? Anybody? Okay. Not as many as I expected. I had one and all my friends had one. And every time we went to a youth event somewhere, everybody would have these WWJD bracelets on. Some of them were, were very uh, colorful and they had all different styles that you could wear. And, and I'm sure that it started with very genuine motives, the WWJD craze. And it's a good question to ask. What would Jesus do? The Bible says we're supposed to have the mindset of Jesus. The Bible says we're supposed to walk in the way that he walked. So it's not a bad question. Anytime you are facing a decision or a situation to go, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then go back to the Bible and and find where he did something that was kind of related to that or taught something and and learn from that. It's a good question to ask. But it seemed like at some point, those bracelets stopped being about genuinely asking the question and people who are really trying to follow what Jesus said for their life and started to be more about just looking like you were a spiritual person. It was something we saw people wear all the time and we knew that based on their life and and their choices and their lifestyle, they were not asking that question regularly. It was just something that they put on so they looked like they were really spiritual. And here's the thing. In first century AD Israel, fasting was the WWJD bracelet of the time. It was not something that was prescribed by God to do twice a week, but it had become this sort of cultural norm, this tradition that that if you were going to be an observant, pious, religious person, a follower of a rabbi of some kind, then you were just expected to do this, to kind of let people know that you were pious, you were religious, you were virtuous. I think it's worth a sidebar here to note that this is always a danger for the church. We are always at risk of taking a good spiritual practice and turning it into some kind of a tradition or the way we do it, some kind of methodology, some kind of approach, and eventually letting that become an idol in our lives. It's always something we have to keep an eye out for. Now, I, I love traditions, and there are certain ways I do things and ways our family do, do things and ways we do things here at this church and other churches. And sometimes we can get into this mode where we think the way we do it's the only way to do it. In fact, there were certain things when I came to this church and I learned how we do certain things here that are so different from how I've done things in the past at previous churches that I had to go, is that, is that okay? Is that biblical? I guess it's not unbiblical. Okay. And now they're so normal to me that it's just like, yeah, that's what we do. That's what we do here. But we have these extra methods and, and traditions that we can latch onto. And we need to be very careful to hold those with an open hand. Because otherwise we can get to the point where we value that more than we value the clear teaching of God's word. Where we take, and we've talked about this before, a preference and we elevate it up to the level of a doctrine, but it's so easy to do. And that's essentially what happens so often with the Pharisees. We have to be careful in the church not to allow our good traditions and good practices and good ways of doing things to become so important to us that we value that method over the purpose we originally started doing that practice for. A wise pastor once said, I heard him say this um, a long time ago, if you want to find out where a church's idols are, start changing things. And then you will see what they really latch on, what they really value. Is it the truth of the gospel? Is it the core of the doctrine? Or so often aren't the things that we fight over lesser important things that we change. So it's good advice for us today to remember. And it's also good to know that the things we struggle with are nothing new. This is not a new phenomenon for the church to wrestle with these kinds of issues. This is exactly what the people of God have wrestled with for a long, long time. 
And the Jewish people at this time dealt with the same type of problem, just in a little different way. We have this cultural um, norm for pious, observant Jews of fasting twice a week. Jesus, your disciples aren't doing this. They're breaking from our tradition. They're not breaking any biblical regulations. I think that's important to know. They're not breaking anything that scripture told them to do, but they're breaking the religious tradition of the day. Why, Jesus, are your disciples not doing this? And he gives them three parables. The, the uh, wedding guests fasting for the groom, using a patch of cloth from new clothes to patch an old garment and putting new wine in old wineskins. What do each of these mean? Let's start talking about the wedding. Now, I've been involved in several weddings. Only one of those was mine, just to be clear. But I have officiated a number of weddings and been a guest at a number of weddings. And none of those weddings involved fasting as far as I know. Usually the opposite, right? Usually a wedding is a time to celebrate with great food. And you want a reception that's got like really nice food at it because you're celebrating and it's a time of joy. And that was true in Israel as well. Here's how weddings typically worked for a Jewish family in Israel. You would have the groom who would go to the bride's house where the ceremony would take place. And after that, they would all go back to the groom's parents' house in this big procession with lights going. So everybody knew there was this wedding march happening. They had just gotten married and now they're going to the reception and waiting for them at the groom's parents' house is a feast. I mean, an incredible spread of food. They are gonna eat and eat and eat and no one is fasting because no one is mourning, hopefully, if it's a good marriage. They're not gonna fast. Fasting is a sign that something is wrong. Fasting is a sign that, that we need God to step in in a big way because something's wrong in my life or I see a problem in the world or, or in my community or in my family with my kids, with, with my friends, I see a problem and I'm fasting. Or fasting because I lost a loved one, something is wrong. Or, or fasting because there are distractions in my life and I want to just focus on God for a while. But whatever it is, fasting is a sign that there is something wrong. That's why we fast. And Jesus says that no one fasts when they're celebrating with the groom. And of course, the groom here is Jesus. There's no reason to fast. There's no reason to mourn. There's no reason to focus on the wrong things when you've got Jesus with you in person. Why would you fast? When he is there, but he says that someday the groom will be taken away and then they will fast. And of course he was predicting his death, which would bring great sorrow to the disciples. So the wedding parable teaches that there's no reason to fast. There's no reason to mourn when Jesus is there. And this is a, a very time specific parable because Jesus did end up going away. The groom was taken away. And there are reasons to fast. But Jesus explained why his disciples weren't fasting in the moment. Now, whether or not the disciples actually understood this is why they didn't need to fast or not, I don't know. Sometimes those guys were kind of dense. Sometimes I can be too. But Jesus was explaining why he wasn't teaching them that they needed to fast. He wasn't expecting them to fast because he was with them. But then he takes it even further. So he kind of answers the question with this parable, but then he goes even further and gives them two more parables. And this is where I think there's some really interesting application for you and for me. Let's talk about the clothing and the wineskin. The clothing and the wineskin. These two parables have a very similar meaning using two different common household items. First one is about clothing. I have two examples for you here. 
Jesus says, no one takes a patch of cloth from a, a nice new garment and uses it to fix a hole on an old garment. Why? Because if you did that, the new garment would be ruined and the patch wouldn't match the old garment at all. In fact, in a, a different book, I think it's Mark, he says, not only that, but if you took new cloth that hadn't been washed yet and used a piece of that to patch old, an old garment that had been washed already, what's going to happen? The new fabric is going to shrink. You ever had a shirt that you bought and you loved it and it had a cool message on it? It was going to be your favorite shirt and it fit perfectly and you put it through the wash and it shrunk two sizes? You're like, oh man, I liked that shirt. That's what happens to, to fabric when you put it in the wash sometimes. Depending on the fabric, it's going to shrink. And so what would happen is you would put the new patch on the old garment and everything is okay for a little while. Maybe it doesn't match and maybe you ruin the new garment. But then you go to wash it, the new patch shrinks, and now it rips again. And Jesus even says, the hole will be bigger than it was before. No one takes a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. That wouldn't make any sense. And the point Jesus is making is, that's ridiculous. It's nonsensical. No one would do that. Makes absolutely no sense. The same thing for putting new wine into old wineskins. They didn't have refrigerators back then. They could not easily store water in a place that it would be kept at a cool temperature to keep bacteria from growing in it. So if you kept water for very long and they didn't have the right chemicals to treat it, you would grow bacteria in it. You could get sick. You could even die from drinking contaminated water. But wine, wine is naturally sterile and it can keep for a very long time. And so you could store wine or wine that was watered down because the wine would sterilize the water and it was safer to keep that way and safer to drink. You could keep it for a very long time. Wineskins were made from goat or sheepskin that was tanned. They would cut it into a certain shape. They would flatten it out. And then they would stitch it together. And once they had done that, they'd turn it inside out. And they would pour resin into it and let that resin harden in there. But it was still kind of soft and flexible. And it would make it watertight. Leather, when you first work with it, if you, if you first have a, a wineskin made, it's going to be soft, it's going to be pliable, and you can put new wine in there. And what happens with new wine is it continues to ferment for a while. And as it ferments, it creates gases and it expands. And so that new wineskin with that soft, supple, new leather that's been recently conditioned is going to grow with the new wine that's inside of it as it expands. But over time, a wineskin can become brittle. And, and when it's aged, it's just not as flexible as it used to be. People are the same way, right? <laughs> We're not as flexible the older we get. And so for a wineskin, as it gets older, if you put new wine in that, that new wine's going to expand. It's going to start to pop some cracks into the old wineskin, and you're going to lose the wine and the wineskin. Both will be ruined. Jesus is making the same exact point here, which is that it would make no sense it would be foolish, it would be a rookie mistake for you to put new wine in an old wineskin or patch an old garment with a new one. It doesn't make any sense. That's kind of the obvious point. Something that is old sometimes cannot blend with the new. New patches are for new clothes. New wine is for new wineskin. But Jesus is making an even bigger point here. What he is saying is that he is not bringing an adaptation of Judaism. Jesus is not trying to take the old way of the Mosaic law 
And then all of the extra 613 laws and extra practices, traditions, and habits that the Pharisees and other religious leaders added to it. He's not taking that old system and tweaking it a little bit. He's not saying you can take all the way that the Jewish people did things, add some Jesus in there, and that's the, the sum of his teaching. There's something different going on here. And this is not to, this is not to downplay uh, Judaism this is not to downplay the great contribution of what God did through the Old Testament and the Jewish people and how that forms the building blocks that, that get built upon in the New Testament for Christianity, not at all. But what Jesus is bringing is not an adaptation, it is a replacement. It's not just Judaism 2.0. It is something completely new and fresh. God's plan was never for all people to approach God the way that he had them approach him in the Old Testament. He had something else in mind, something bigger in mind, something that would involve every nation and language and tribe around the world. A way to connect with him that would go so much farther than what they were able to do in the old system. God used Jewish laws as a way to demonstrate that we could never do enough to, to meet God's standard, to be perfectly acceptable to God. There's no way we could ever follow it all. Paul says that the law was like a taskmaster that showed us our need for a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that would cover all our sins, not just animals that we would take and not just fasting on certain days and not other activities to try to get us close to God. We needed something bigger that would cover sin once and for all. Last week, we talked about the halakha and the haggadah. You guys remember those words well, right? And what they mean. Somebody told me that they thought I was saying haggadahs which is preferable. Halakha and the Haggadah, the instructions and the illustrations about the instructions. We talked about the fact that Jesus brought new halakha, new teaching, a fresh approach, a new way to relate to God. It was based on certainly and built upon what God gave in the Old Testament. Don't throw that away. It's very important. There's a lot we learn about God there. In fact, you can't understand the New Testament without really understanding the Old Testament. It's very, very important, and you learn so much about God there. But the, the way of relating to God in the Old Testament, praise God, has been replaced, has been changed to something fresh and something new that Jesus brought the way God really wants to connect with us on a personal level, not through a priest, not through a system of animal sacrifice, but through Jesus Christ, who is our sacrifice and is our high priest. And so what Jesus is saying is you cannot take that old system that you guys are trying to follow as best as you can and cram Jesus into that, the new, and expect that that's going to make everything all right. You cannot take the old structure of the laws and the traditions and everything that the Jewish people did, and that's the wineskin and just try to fit Jesus in there. It's not going to work. It's just not going to work. It's going to be a disastrous outcome. So people are asking, why, Jesus, do your disciples not fast like all the other religious people? And Jesus knew that their fasting was based on this old system with man-made rules added on top of that to signal their virtue and perhaps earn the right to be in God's kingdom. And that mindset is incompatible with faith in Jesus and following Jesus. You can't hold on to the old system when it doesn't mix with the new. There is a movement uh, in Christianity today to go back to the ways of the Old Testament. Um, and maybe you've in, encountered some of these people or heard about these people. There are Christians who want to go back to practicing all the, uh, maybe not all of them, but the ones they like, different, different laws and things, practices and, and certain feasts and things like that. And they want to continue doing those. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
And if you want to, if you want to practice some of the Old Testament um, practices, that, that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that unless you are viewing that as a part of your salvation. Unless you are saying, yes, I want Jesus, but I also have to do this stuff so God will be okay with me so that I can have a right relationship with God. That's when there's a problem when we're adding the old and the new and we're mixing them together and saying, I'm going to do both of these things because when we do that, it cheapens the sacrifice of Jesus. When we do that, we're saying Jesus isn't enough. I've got to do this other thing too. That's why you cannot patch an old garment with new clothes. Now that may not be a major issue for you and me. I don't think too many of us are coming out of Judaism into Christianity. Maybe some, but probably not too many of us are. We may not be that tempted to go back to the old way of doing things under the Mosaic covenant. We may not be tempted to think that practicing some of the old laws of the, of the Tanakh or of the Pharisees are necessary for us to be right with God. But don't we do this in other ways? Don't we take the new and try to patch up the old in other ways? Don't we put new wine and old wineskins sometimes? These principles still hold true for us. Let me tell you what I mean. See, I want to hold on to a part of my old life, don't you? I want to keep some of those things from the past. We want to hold on to some of our habits, some of our addictions, some of our vices, keep some of those things from the old self, but patch on some Jesus. The old self was willing to stretch the truth to get what it wanted. The old self would put others down to feel better about itself. The old self would spread rumors about other people, either to make themselves feel better or because they wanted to hurt them or just thought it was fun. The old self was addicted to drugs or porn. The old self was degrading to its spouse. The old self found ultimate purpose in career or work. The old self cared more than anything about how other people perceived it. The old self would go to great lengths to get its own way. The old self used language that was insulting to other people. The old self thought that wealth was the most important thing you could gain in this life. The old self pursued personal pleasure above helping others. And what we so often want to do is take the bits and pieces that we like of the old self and patch on some Jesus. Or take the structure of my old life. In fact, let me just live the life I want to live from Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday I'll go get my shot in the arm of Jesus. It's like putting new wine into an old wineskin. It's like patching an old garment with new cloth. The result is going to be a disaster. Peter said in his second letter, when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. So what do we do? We have to have a major upgrade. We have to trade in that old wineskin for a completely new one, that old piece of clothing for brand new ones. And that's exactly what Jesus offers to us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, brand new. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. He says in Ephesians, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. Get rid of that old stuff which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature. He's using the language of clothing here. He's saying, take this thing off and get rid of it. And I know it keeps wanting to come back. 
And I know that it's tempting to kind of go back there every now and then. And it's a way of self-soothing. And when we're lonely and we're discouraged and we feel disconnected from people, this looks really attractive to us. And we can slip it back on like a dog returning to its vomit, like a washed pig that goes back to the mud. But Paul is saying, throw this thing away. Get rid of it completely. Put on the new clothes. He's using clothing language here. Let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature. Created to be like God. Truly righteous and holy. God does not want us to blend the old nature with the new. We have to daily throw off the old and embrace the new. So my question for all of us today, as we wrap up, is what are we still holding on to? What are those habits those things that we used to do, those elements of the old self, those old practices, those things that keep coming back around that we need to surrender to Jesus Christ today. In fact, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes for a moment, just so you can focus, just so you can think, whether you're here or at home, wherever you are, just close your eyes for a minute and ask God, is there something in my life, God, something that is old that I've been holding on to some old clothing that I just try to keep patching up with Jesus when I just need to get rid of it and stop justifying it. Some old structure, some old way of doing things that I just keep pouring Jesus into, thinking that that's gonna make it okay. I just need to get rid of it. Jesus said at the end of this passage, people keep going back to the old. They say the old is just fine. His point was not that it's fine, but that it's a shame that we keep returning to the old like a dog to its vomit. God, is there some old mindset, some old attitude, some some old sinful practice that has not been delivered over to you? Let's pray about it right now. Jesus, I know there are things in my life and probably for everyone who is in this room right now, we can think about it and say, yep, that's something that needs to change. That's something I've been holding on to. And I've been thinking that it's okay because I can justify it in a certain way and and, and, and I, I go to church on Sunday, or at least I watch online, and I, I read my Bible every now and then, and so I'm tacking Jesus onto this old way of life, and you don't want any of that. Lord, I pray that today there'd be some people who would say, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm done with patching the old with the new. I'm going all in, all in on following Jesus, all in on the new clothes that he's made for me. I'm gonna be a different person. I'm gonna fully embrace this new person, this new life that Jesus has provided for me. God, that is my prayer for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.